thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Coming up this week, we'll be meeting the man that's turning speed bumps into electricity. That's Peter Hughes, and he'll be joining us shortly. Also, Lynn McCaskey's here from Birmingham, and she's turning the waste from a chocolate factory, Bourneville, I believe, isn't it, Lynn, into something that could be running your car in future. And also, we'll be talking to Nikki White about the oil industry. How much of that stuff is there left? Where do we get oil from? Where does it come from? And what can we do with it? Hello, my name's Chris Smith. And if you would like to join in tonight's programme, 08459 25 2000 is the phone number. You can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. And you can send us a text as well. The text number's 07786 20 1960. Also here to help me this evening is Phil Rosenberg. Good evening, Phil. Hello. Uh, thanks, Chris. Uh, also, in today's news, we're going to be looking at a CAT scan of HIV. This is going to be the closest look ever an individual HIV virus. Pretty impressive stuff. We've also got an online virtual counsellor that's going to convince you t- to quit smoking. And we're also going to be looking at the Pioneer spacecraft that have gone actually way off course at the moment. Uh, also, in today's final piece, we're going to be looking at the Japanese Space Agency mission to a big pile of floating rubble. So listen to that shortly. And uh, if you would like to ask us any other questions on anything general science, 08459 25 2000 is the phone number. Lines do get busy. Get your name in the hat uh, to have a go at any old question right now. 08459 25 2000. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. We're kicking off, as we always do each week, with a look at some of the other major science news stories coming in from around the world. And uh, here's one which is quite close to home. Ruth Welsh is at the University of Loughborough and collaborating with colleagues in Monash University in Australia. And she's been looking at an intelligent way to save your life in cars with seatbelts because it turns out uh, a recent study that she's done has shown that people over the age of 65 and especially women are very very susceptible to injury caused by seatbelts and that's because as you get older and especially if you're a woman bones become thinner and therefore you're more likely to have damage unleashed on them if you're very rapidly decelerated in a car by a seatbelt snapping shut across your chest for example very very fast how do you get around the problem well they've teamed up with uh, the with uh, sorry that they've actually um, had added to this story some interesting findings from Cranfield University where um, car manufacturers Nissan have teamed up with these guys at Cranfield um, a chap called Roger Hardy there Uh, they've produced something which is essentially a finger scanner and you'll be able to put your finger into a hole say on the top of the gear lever or somewhere else on the car and it will work out how thin your bones are on the basis of scanning your finger with ultrasound and it will then reprogram the car's uh, safety procedures so it will work out how quickly to deploy the airbag and how quickly to tell the seatbelt to snap shut or lock. So in other words, if you're obviously a little bit on the frail side, then the seatbelt will kick in slightly more gently than if you're a more robust strapping rugby player, and that should stave off a few of these injuries. Uh, What they're talking about doing is plumbing this into the ignition system on the car so that you'd have to be scanned first, and every passenger perhaps in the car, before the car could move off. Phil. Okay, now, you would have thought that nowadays we actually can send a space mission up into space and, and get it pretty much on target. 
Um, we've sent, you know, dozens out there and uh, most of them, well, most of them nearly, uh, seem to get there on target in the right place at the right time. However, the Pioneer spacecraft seems to tell a bit of a different story. Uh, Pioneers 10 and 11 were launched in 1972 and 1973 uh, to go out and tour the outer planets of our solar system. Uh, and NASA's actually still in contact with Pioneer 11, so that's over 30 years later, still in touch with that one. Are they running on solar, Phil? Uh, they're not, actually. They're running on nuclear fuel, so it's um, essentially a plutonium source that's on, on board, uh, and the heat from that plutonium source is gener- generates electricity, which then powers the spacecraft. Um, but the big problem with them, as I'll say a big problem, is that they're both hundreds of thousands of kilometres off course. Um, they're not actually looking at planets anymore, or they've been there and done that, but we can't really understand why they are hundreds of thousands of kilometres in the wrong place. Uh, and there's a guy called Slava Turishev who's actually now started a, a process to actually find out why this could be. Um, now, to do this, he actually hunt, had to hunt down data from all the way back in the 1970s when these spacecraft was first launched. Uh, he's managed to find um, reels of uh, magnetic tape that were stored under shell uh, underneath stairs in uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's also managed to find 60 filing cabinets worth of floppy disks in the Ames Research Centre. But has he found the answer as to why it's off course? Not yet. He's still doing the work. <laughs> so, um, I mean, is there any rational explanation? Is it just gone off in the wrong direction, or uh, is there something funny happening in space that we can't account for? Well, there are two main sort of theories. The first is that it's something perfectly normal. It's either the when you track all the little thruster movements throughout the whole mission, it adds up to, to displace the spacecraft by this 400,000 kilometres that they're off, they're off course. Or possibly it could be that the, the nuclear power source that we mentioned earlier is actually emitting radiation in one particular direction that's slowly pushing the spacecraft off course. Now, this is all going to be accounted for once we actually get all this data together and, and analyse it all thoroughly. However, there's one other theory, and that is that actually, possibly, our theories of gravity are not quite right. Some people argue that possibly Newton and Einstein afterwards, actually could have been slightly incorrect and that we could need to tweak their theories a little bit just to uh, account for this, mo- this, this change in the Pioneer spacecraft. And actually other spacecraft now that have gone out to the outer solar system are starting to show similar trends to, to the Pioneer ones. So something that's really going to possibly be about the textbooks, but it might be all accountable for in other means. Have to watch this space, I guess, Phil. Absolutely. Uh, now, we told you about this at the beginning. Uh, are you a smoker? Do you, do you wish you weren't? Would you like to give up? Well, evidence suggests 75% of people every year say they'd like to quit smoking. The success rate on an annual basis is much less than that. It's roughly about uh, 20 to 25% of people who, who get top-level help. In other words, they get a bit of hypnosis or they get some nicotine chewing gum or maybe one of the other drugs that can help you, like Zyban. But one thing that's been shown to be really, really effective in helping people to quit is support. And that means someone saying to you, yep, keep it up, you're doing a good job, or, or just essentially chivying you along and dissuading you from succumbing to the cravings at the critical time. And there's a group of researchers in the Netherlands, actually it's a lady called Betsy van Dyke, who have come up with the idea not of producing real live counsellors, but of producing fake ones, virtual people who exist only in a computer on the internet. And they'll be available day and night, and that's the benefit. doesn't matter when you fancy a fag, you can just get onto the internet and you can get in touch with this chat bot, as it's called, 
and they've been programmed to emulate or pretend to be councillors from a real live anti-smoking um, campaign. There's a group in, uh, the, in the Netherlands called Stivoro, S-D-I-V-O-R-O, and they're uh, an anti-smoking group, and they have councillors that can help people on the telephone and things like that. So what they've done is to take the answers that those councillors would have given and program them into this chatbot. Is this a pipe dream? Excuse the pun. Probably not, because there's another researcher who's based in Boston called Timothy Bickmore, and what he's done in the past is to make a, a computer chatbot in the same way called Laura. And the idea of this thing was that it would persuade elderly people to take more exercise, because we know that the more exercise you take as, as, you, as you get older, the better it is for you. It helps you to remain more mobile, it keeps your muscles strong and keeps your bones strong, so it's a good thing. So they're basing the idea on his findings, this uh, computer Laura that helped these elderly people to get more active, and so they're going to wheel out this um, virtual virtual counsellor before too long and test it. And it won't just be uh, lines of text, it will actually be visuals as well because it'll be a computer animated face. If it's successful, they're hopefully going to extend this to other areas where people might need a counsellor, such as uh, helping people to overcome phobias or alcoholism. We've also got the results from the Japanese space spacecraft called Hayabusa. Now, this spacecraft has actually gone to visit an asteroid called Itakawa. Didn't it break down? It's had a lot of trouble, actually. Um... En route to the asteroid, it's gyroscopes that hold it stable. Two out of the three of those gyroscopes actually actually failed, giving it real stability problems. Uh, and then when it actually... was The idea was it was going to drop a little rover onto the uh, surface. It was actually going to hop around on the surface of this asteroid. But unfortunately, again, because of these stability problems, it actually released in the wrong direction and actually just floated off into space. So trouble there. And it was also aiming to actually collect a sample off the asteroid by smashing into it with a projectile and collecting the debris that was blown out. But because of communication problems, we're not sure if that sample's been taken. However, it has come up with some really great results, even so. I mean, the photos we've got back from this, this mission have been absolutely fantastic. If you can get online and check them out, they really are great. Where do you find them? If you want to, just literally go into any search engine and search for Hayabusa, spell H-Y-A-B-U-S-A, you'll be able to find them without any problem at all. Why are people interested in going to an asteroid? What can you tell us? Well, asteroids are really quite interesting because they're, they're the bits that formed before the planets were forming. Um, we can get all sorts of data about how the planets formed from, um, from looking at the, the information we can get from asteroids, and in particular, actually, when the, if a small bit of an asteroid falls to Earth in the form of a meteorite, we can get some real, really interesting data there. But really what we'd like to do is get to these bits before they come into the Earth's atmosphere, so get to them as part of the asteroid initially. That's why we want to get this sample back. Uh, but this particular asteroid really is a, a bit of a weird-looking thing. It's actually essentially just a really big floating rubble pile. It turns out that we've done calculations, it's about 40% empty space, and the rest are just gaps between lumps of rock that are just literally sitting next to each other, held together by their own gravity. So imagine how weak a gravity might be from you know, a small metre-sized boulder. It's just that weak gravity that's holding the whole thing together. And it's actually really quite lumpy, with little smooth areas of, of like sand and gravel in amongst it. And another interesting thing is that there's no craters on there. Most of the bodies in the solar system are covered in craters where things have smashed into them and, and left holes. This hasn't, which means that probably what happens is every time something hits it, the whole thing disintegrates and then slowly comes back together in these lumps of rubble. So we've actually learned quite a lot about how these asteroids are formed and also how maybe when we, when we, if we actually come to the point where we have a collision course with an asteroid, we know a bit more about them and how we can possibly deflect them. 
It's the Naked Scientist, Chris and Phil. And if you'd like to ask us any questions, our phone number is 08459 25 2000. You can email chris at nakedscientist.com and you can also text us on 07786 20 The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. Got an email here from uh, Ian Henley, and uh, he says he very much enjoys listening to our programme, loves the show, keep it going. Uh, He does say, I must correct an explanation I gave for the reason for seasons, so the reasons for seasons, uh, which was on the 11th of May. I think I confused people a little bit. Um, What I I said was, um, I was confusing two things. Uh, I confused something called Milankovitch cycles with general seasons. Now, the reason we have seasons is because the Earth is tilted on its axis, and the, the Earth's orbit is currently almost perfect perfectly circular around the sun and because the planet is tilted slightly on some points of that circle around the sun the top half of the earth is tilted towards the sun and therefore more sunlight hits that part of the earth and as a result of it being exposed to more sunlight that means more energy more heat higher temperatures that means summer on the other side of its orbit on the other hand the earth uh, is therefore tilted our part of the earth not the southern hemisphere is tilted away from the sun and that means we have shorter days less sunlight means less heat therefore it's colder on average and we have a winter time now occasionally over the course of earth's uh, 4500 million year history its orbit isn't perfectly circular and it goes in an ellipse around the sun and that means that on certain parts of its travel it gets more heat than others and this can provoke other changes these are referred to as milankovitch cycles and this can change the weather patterns a little bit more and i sort of mer- the two together before so i, I apologize if i misled anyone uh, on that a couple of weeks ago so thank you very much to uh, ian henley for bringing that to my attention now i mentioned at the beginning that researchers managed to get their their closest ever look at hiv this week and this is a fantastic piece of research it's been carried out by ken rue who's at florida state university in the u.s and really this gives us a, a handle with which to get hold of hiv and hopefully stimulate people to get towards that elusive vaccine because it's been 25 years this year since the first cases of HIV were diagnosed and in fact the figures make very gloomy reading. There have been at least 25 million deaths since that time, 40 million people are currently infected with HIV and about 4 to 5 million new cases are cropping up every year and in fact if the present rate of infection continues we're going to see about 100 million people infected by 2010. Uh, When you think that pandemic flu, which everyone thinks is a major disaster, killed only 40 million people, well, HIV has already beaten that. So what has Kemru done? What these guys did was to immobilise some virus particles in a microscopic ice cube. What you do is to float a a tiny drop of water containing the virus particles onto a, a very small copper grid, and then you very, very quickly freeze it down, and it produces a flawless ice cube around the virus, and then you can look at it under an electron microscope. And the electron microscope is a process called cryo-electron microscopy tomography, and this builds up a three-dimensional picture of the virus. And what they found is it looks a bit like a meatball with spikes sticking out of it. And these spikes are really, really interesting. They measure about one one-hundred-thousandth of a millimetre long, these spikes. They're absolutely tiny, but they're like miniature grappling hooks that enable the virus to latch onto the surface of a cell and then get inside it. And that's how they infect us. And because they can do it that way, researchers think they're a really important target for trying to get the immune system to attack because if you can neutralise those spikes, you might actually be able to stop the virus in its tracks. Actually, there's one other interesting thing they found about these spikes, and that is that we always thought these spikes, because people had a vague idea we knew they were there, we thought they looked a bit like a lollipop, a stick with a big round blob on the top. 
But what this new piece of research has shown is that that's not true at all. What they actually look like is a tripod with a big head on the top. The stalk has actually got three legs. And what Kemru says is that hopefully now synthetic versions of these spikes could be used to provide researchers with a better target against which to try and make vaccines or drugs to try and work out how to tackle this problem. Phil? We've got uh, a quick email here from Bruno Schwarzbach. Uh, he says, uh, Amazed to find such nice broadcasts do exist on the internet. Thanks a lot. Well, that's Bruno from the Czech Republic. Thank you very much, Bruno. Now let's uh, head over to our kitchen science. Uh, Derek is in uh, Long Road, sorry, Hills Road Sixth Form College, and he's with Chris Muirhead from Birmingham University and Gemma and Will. So, Derek. What are you up to? Hello there. Welcome this time to Hills Road Sixth Form College. Uh, we've come here with some new uh, Naked Scientist colleagues of ours to, um, who are new recruits to the show to uh, do some live experiments for us. So I wonder then if you, uh, the new recruit, could tell me who you are and what you do, please. OK, I'm Chris Muirhead and I'm a lecturer at Birmingham University in the School of Physics and Astronomy. OK, and we have got some seriously amazing experiments that Chris has set up for us that we're ready to do. So... Just hang on for those. We've also got some fantastic participants here from Hills Road Sixth Form College. Uh, guys, could you just tell me uh, your names and what year you're in, please? Gemma Raven in Year 12. Uh, William Brooks, Year 12. OK, then. Right, then. So what we have here is uh, a big pot of some stuff. It's in a, uh, a cylindrical uh, kind of canister, which is about two feet tall and ten inches across. And uh, Chris has actually got some pretty amazing experiments ready to do with this stuff. So, Chris, what are you about to do? Well, I'm just about to take a piece of ordinary garden hose, which you can see is a fairly soft, flexible piece of material, and I'm going to lure it into this liquid, and we're going to see what happens to it. OK, then. And, Will, tell me what you see. Well, the, uh, it's all spurting out everywhere and frothing over, and it's coming out the end of the tube, which is above the level of liquid. Yeah, OK, then. And so we've dropped it in there. Now what, Chris? I'm going to take it out, and you're going to see what's happened to the properties of this material. What you can see here is that the material has now gone completely hard and solid. Instead of being flexible, it's absolutely rigid. And just to show you how rigid it is, I'm going to take it and I'm going to smack it on the floor. OK, uh, Gemma, tell me what happened. It's in lots of little pieces on the floor. <laughs> OK, yeah, so, so Chris basically smashed that thing on the floor and we are now pretty much treading on tiny pieces of shattered garden hose. So that went from being bendy to being very, very solid. We're going to find out, though, what was going on there. So, Chris, please give us a bit of an explanation. Before I tell you exactly about what happened to the garden hose, perhaps we ought to spend a, just a few minutes thinking about what we as scientists mean by low temperatures. What you probably mean by low temperatures is what happens when you open the door of your fridge and it's cold in there. And that would have a temperature of perhaps a few degrees above freezing point. Now, from our point of view, that is really warm and far too warm to enable us to do some of the experiments that we're going to show you today. So you mean your point of view as a scientist working with this kind of stuff? Yeah, that's really very warm stuff as far as we're concerned. Now, if you go out into a really, really cold day in the Antarctic, perhaps I could ask our friends here from the college what you think would be a really cold day in the Antarctic. So what do you think is the coldest the Antarctic ever gets? Will, what do you say? About minus 100 degrees? Not quite so low as that, about minus 89 degrees, and that's the coldest temperature that had ever occurred or ever recorded to have occurred naturally on Earth. If you go down now to minus 196 Celsius, the air around you will turn into a liquid. Now, we can't quite show you liquid air, but what we've got in this bucket that I was demonstrating earlier is liquid nitrogen. We've mentioned liquid nitrogen there, Chris. Now, I wonder if these guys have heard of liquid nitrogen at all. Gemma, have you ever heard of that stuff? Yes, we had a few demonstrations at school. OK, ah, so they've already seen it. Very good. OK, then. But the question is, then, how does it work? Why is it a liquid? It's a liquid because when things are hot, 
the thermal energy causes them to move around very fast, and that prevents them from living close to each other, which they have to do in a liquid. And as you cool a gas down, the atoms move less and less rapidly, and eventually the attractive forces between the atoms hold them together in the form of a liquid. If you go even colder, they'll turn into a solid. Right. Now, I suppose the, uh, the, the usual example for this would be water, wouldn't it? So when we have it at room temperature, it's a liquid. If we take it very cold, then it becomes a solid, which is ice. And then if we heat it up to 100 degrees, it becomes steam, which is the gas. That's absolutely correct. And what happens with the liquid nitrogen is that it turns from a gas into a liquid at this temperature of minus 196 Celsius. OK, then. Now, we took a piece of rubber hosing and we put it into that very, very cold liquid and then we were able to smash it. It became very brittle, didn't it? So why did that happen? For a rather similar reason to the reason that a gas turns into a liquid. Temperature is a physicist's rather fancy way of saying jiggling around. And when you cool things down, they jiggle around less and less. When you take a piece of rubber and you bend it, it's important that the atoms can move past each other because when you bend it, you're changing its shape and the atoms have to move. If you cool it down, the atoms become locked into position so that they can't move past each other and the material becomes very, very brittle. OK, so we've put a bit of rubber hosing into liquid nitrogen and the rubber hosing clearly didn't enjoy it. Um, what, though, would happen if we actually put living things into this kind of temperature? Right. Uh, over here, we've got some parsley. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this parsley and I'm going to lower it into the liquid nitrogen. OK, so before we do that then, uh, Will and Gemma, we've, we've seen what the uh, liquid nitrogen did to the rubber tubing. So what do you think will happen to the parsley, Will? I think that the parsley will probably snap because it will freeze and the water won't be able to slip past each other and so it won't be able to bend at all and the force will just break it apart. OK, sounds good. Gemma, any thoughts? Uh, just frozen parsley. <laughs> Indeed. OK, you concur. All right then, so let's stick it in. OK, here we go. As far as the liquid nitrogen is concerned, I've just stuck something red-hot in there. It's like sticking a red-hot poker into some water, and it causes it to boil. Right, the parsley is now very cold, and we take it out. And there you are, parsley already put into your favourite dish. So what Chris has done there is just immediately rubbed it around in his hands, and it's immediately just all gone into lovely chopped bits, which I must say, if I'm cooking with parsley, would take me quite a while. So that's quite a good application of, uh, a culinary application of liquid nitrogen there. Absolutely correct. What you've got to be a little bit careful about is not to stick your fingers in there. If you put your fingers into liquid nitrogen, then your fingers will go solid, just like the piece of garden hose did. And when you warm them up again, they'll go all soft again, just like the garden hose did. But unfortunately, they'll be permanently damaged, because what you will have is severe frostbite. And a few days later, they'll start to go black, and you'll lose your fingers. OK, well, thank you very much, Chris, for that experiment. Um, I'd just like to quickly ask Will and Gemma what they thought of it. Gemma? Uh, very interesting and very good to see. <laughs> OK, and Will, what about you? Do you think liquid nitrogen have a good application in the kitchen, maybe? Well, I was shocked at how uh, smashable things were when they could put at high, very low temperatures and so it could chop up lots of different vegetables like that. Yeah, I think it could make life very, very easy in the kitchen. So there you go, a bit of kitchen science in the end there from us. OK, well, thank you very much to Chris, uh, who's come over from Birmingham University. That's fantastic. And to Will and Gemma from Hills Road 61 College. That's all from us, but we'll be back next week, as always, with some more kitchen science. So please do join us then. Until then, goodbye. Thank you very much, Derek. And also thank you to Chris Muirhead from Birmingham University, who was joined in the kitchen there by Gemma and Will at Hills Road Sixth Form College. Next week, here's your shopping list if you'd like to take part in kitchen science. Uh, Derek will be brandishing a blender out in Norfolk and he's going to learn how to tell whether something is acid or alkaline just using red cabbage. So you need some fresh red cabbage, a blender or a saucepan, and some boiling water. So, you, so if you're a bit on the small side, you might need some help with the boiling water. You'll also need some vinegar and lemon juice, some bicarbonate of soda, and some soap. So that's to take part in Kitchen Science next week.
Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The naked scientists. In just a second, we'll be having a quick chat to Adrian. Just before then, I've got an email here from Kevin Porter. He says he's, li he's listening in Boston. That's the Boston, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, rather than the one uh, in here in the UK. And he was uh, writing to us about the May the 14th uh, show that we did when we were talking about stinging cells, which are called nematocysts, that are used by jellyfish to sting things with. And I remember asking Helen, who was here that evening, do you know about some animals that can take in these stinging cells in their bodies and then reuse them for their own defences? And she said she knows it happens, but she wasn't entirely sure about it. Well, Kevin's written, and he says, uh, this is something I know something about. Um, one of the discussions about stinging cells and jellyfish and the ability of certain species to incorporate these stingers into their own tissues will see anemones, which also um, possess these nematocysts, these are stinging cells, are the primary food for sea slugs. Now, sea slugs will feed on the anemone and some of the nematocysts survive unfired and are then transported to these things called serrata. And the serrata are similar to the tentacles of the anemone, but they lie on the dorsal, the back surface of the slug. I used to examine these serrata and the incorporated nematocysts using an electron microscope many years ago. It's fascinating to follow their progression from the gut into the stinging, into the serrata, these um, stinging tentacles, but I don't have a clue how they get there. So if anyone knows how these cells are actually trafficked across the gut wall of these animals and then moved through the body to the right place in the body without going off, I'd be absolutely fascinated to know because that's, some, that's something that's really had me questioning for, for quite a while. Now let's have a quick chat to Adrian. Hello Adrian. Hello. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. What would you like to talk about? I was listening to you talking earlier about uh, space and I understand the basic principles of uh, for every action there's a reaction. That's why I can walk across the ground and everything. Mm -hmm. But when a rocket is in space and they decide, right, they want to change the direction of the rocket or slow it down, what's the engine firing against? What's it pushing against to slow the rocket down when space, we're told, there's nothing there? Okay, well, um, the way it works is uh, a rocket works by throwing something out of the back so, and the rocket then goes forward. So the action and reaction is actually inside the spacecraft. The, you've got the, um, the fuel that's pushing outwards and pushes the spacecraft forwards then. So in space, what we actually use is um, a material or a, a fuel called hydrazine, uh, and we essentially burn this hydrazine and throw it out of the back of the spacecraft or out the side, depending on how we've got to manoeuvre the spacecraft, through little thrusters, and that's how we manoeuvre the spacecraft and push it around. There are also some other ways we do it as well. Um, we're looking at um, things such as iron drives. Now, that takes individual atoms, ionises them, so they've got an electric charge, and then uses electric fields or magnetic fields to throw these gas molecules then out of the back of the spacecraft. Uh, and we've used that, that, that sort of application, actually, to, to send a spacecraft to the moon, uh, it took a long time to get there, but it got very quick, very fast by the time it got there. So that could be a, a possibility for long-range spacecraft. That was Smart One, wasn't it? It was indeed. That was called Smart One, that mission. Uh, I, th I guess, Adrian, the bottom line is that uh, if you want to slow something down, you've got to apply force in the opposite direction in which you're yeah. travelling. So you have these retro rockets which fire against the direction in which you're travelling. So and that's pushing against itself, basically. Exactly. So the, the rocket has a degree of momentum moving in one direction, and you want to give it momentum in the opposite direction, and then the yeah. two cancel each other out and it will slow 
slow down. So when uh, Venus Express, which we talked about uh, about two or three months ago, went to Venus, it was doing about 13,000 miles an hour by the time it got to Venus. But then as it went towards the orbit insertion on Venus, it fired these rockets, slowed itself right down to a much more sedate pace, and was then able to establish an orbit around Venus. And that's by working against itself. It's rather like if you're on a boat and you're going along full throttle ahead and you want to stop, what do you do? You put the engine in reverse and it creates thrust going the opposite way yes, and as a result slows the boat. Water, isn't it? Uh, yes, but um, at the same time the principle is very, very similar. You're creating force in the opposite direction which helps to break you and slow you down. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Thank quick, you. Quick go at the quiz, Adrian. Not for me, thank you. Okie dokie. Thank, <laughs> thank you for joining you. us on The Naked Scientist. All right. Thank you. It's The Naked Scientist, Chris and Phil, and we're joined this evening by Nikki White and Lynn McCaskey. And we're going to be talking very, very shortly about alternative energies and also the oil industry. How do we get oil? How do we use oil? How much oil is there left? And what are the alternatives to oil? If you have any questions on that, 08459 25 2000 is the phone number, or you can email chris at nakedscientist.com. Now it's time, though, to hop over the ocean for this week's science update, where Bob Hershon and Chelsea Wald will be looking at anti-theft mechanism in scrub jays and how a camel can help calculate the amount of caffeine in your coffee. This week for the Naked Scientist, since the topic is energy, we'll discuss a newly developed test for that chemical that many of us use as our personal fuel, caffeine. But first, Chelsea has this story about some new research from your neck of the woods. It involves some very energetic birds who will go to great lengths to protect what's theirs. Burglary is rampant among western scrub jays. That's why these small woodland birds hide their food. Now researchers at Cambridge University have found that they also keep close tabs on each other. Psychologist Nicola Clayton says that if a scrub jay hides his food when another bird is watching, he'll go back to check on it later. If the coast is clear, he'll move the food once. And if the same observer is still there, he'll move it several times to confuse the would-be thief. And if a new bird is there, he won't move it at all. To do so, they must not only recognize different individuals, but they must remember who was watching at a particular time. So the idea is that they're sort of keeping an eye on the competition, if you like. Which, for a bird, is a surprisingly sophisticated sort of paranoia. Thanks, Chelsea. And now to caffeine. If you sometimes worry whether that cup of decaf you got is really decaf, you'll be happy to learn that a handy caffeine detector for beverages may soon be on the way, courtesy of a llama. Why a llama? Well, along with camels, they're among the few species that make antibodies to caffeine that can withstand high temperatures. Protein chemist Daniel Crimmins and his colleagues at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, were able to use those antibodies to detect the caffeine in a hot cup of coffee. And then uh, no longer needing to schlep around the camel or the llama to our favorite coffee house to do the measurement, we cloned the uh, antibody sequence by standard molecular biology techniques so we could make as much as we needed to. A llama named Very Senorita had the toughest antibodies, so they're using hers to develop a commercial product for home use. Next week, we'll be talking about one of our favorite topics, bacteria. We never tire of the amazing things they can do, like make the world's strongest superglue or survive Mars-like conditions. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Thanks, Bob. If you want to hear any more science news from the AAACS team, you can go to the webpage www.scienceupdate.com. 
I've got an email here from Jessica Armstrong. She's listening in California. She says, she says my name's Jessica. I'm listening in California. I listen to your podcast while driving to and from work. Uh, I, I'm amazed you guys always find something fascinating to talk about. It's great to learn new things. Thanks very much. One here from Rob. He doesn't say where he's from, though. He just says, want to say how much I enjoy the show. It's great to have an intelligent, educational, interesting programme. He's a recent fan and he's looking forward to catching up on all the archives. So if you'd like to drop us a line, chris at nakedscientist.com is the email address. You can phone in live to the programme. Remember, Lynn McCaskey and uh, Nikki Wilder here, and they're going to take your questions about oil and alternative energy and that kind of thing. 08459 25 2000 or chris at nakedscientist.com or text us on 07786 20 Now, if you're a Caribbean spiny lobster and you're ill, don't expect any sympathy, but don't worry, it's all for the greater good of the population. There's a team working in the Florida Keys that have been looking at a particular virus that infects spiny lobsters, and they've found that fellow lobsters, known as conspecifics, uh, that are not infected, try and, avoid, try and avoid those that are. Here's Don Beringer from the Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. First started out, we discovered a virus that infects lobsters, uh, specifically spiny lobsters down in the Florida Keys, and it turns out to be the first virus discovered to infect any lobster in the world. Um, and then what we discovered beyond that is that it has some really interesting impacts on them in that the healthy lobsters are actually able to detect and avoid infected conspecifics before those infected conspecifics actually become infectious to other lobsters. Do you know what the giveaway signs are of an infected lobster then? It's not a, a rapidly progressing virus. In the beginning, they really show no outward signs. Um, it takes them anywhere between about 30 to 80 days to show outward signs, and that's largely dependent on their size. It progresses much more rapidly in the smaller individuals. But once they, they do begin to show signs, the signs are their blood turns a milky white color. Uh, normally, it's a clear uh, with a gray or an amber tint. And then along with that, they start to become lethargic. They uh, cease grooming. Their movement rates slow down, and eventually they don't move at all, and then they pass away. So they sort of turn into a scruffy lobster, first of all, but it, what is it that their conspecifics are able to spot about them that you think gives away the fact that they've got something wrong with them? Lobsters are very chemically sensitive, so we, we theorize that it's, it's some type of a, of a chemical cue that they're either receiving or not receiving um, from the infected individuals. But it might be a combination of visual and chemical cues, and that's one of the things that we hope to investigate here in the next, uh, the next year or so. So do you know roughly how many lobsters, if you just randomly sample the population, are actually carrying the agent? From our field sampling, and we do this yearly, there's a certain suite of sites that we establish as permanent sites that we go back to to get an idea on whether it's, it's changing in these areas. We also do a, a, a larger sampling throughout the Florida Keys each year, and it's, the prevalence seems to stay in the range of about 5 to 8%. But those results are from actually looking at them visually and, and looking for the latter stages of infections. And then when we actually have gone out and, and subsampled populations in various areas and uh, analyzed them using uh, microscopic techniques, um, histology, it's slightly above that. But we were surprised. We thought when we do the histology that we'd find it much, much higher than that. But the histology might not be sensitive enough to pick up those really early stage infections. Is it a threat to these lobsters or is it just not actually making a major dent in the population? That's troubling too. We often get the question of, you know, is, it, you know, is this going to be the death knell for the, for the lobster population? But one of the things we're not clear on is how long it's been in the population. What we do know is that the time that we've been aware of it conclusively and actually had an idea that was a virus, the prevalence, again, hasn't changed dramatically. So that's, that's one of the things we want to try and figure out. And hopefully, you know, if we can figure out regarding the whether it's a chemical detection and if that chemical detection is something very specific to the virus might give us an indication of knowing whether these two things actually evolved together or not, the behavior and this virus. 
Let's hope not if you're a lover of lobster, at least. That was Don Berringer from Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, talking to me uh, earlier. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. Chris and Phil, and uh, we're here with this week's edition of The Naked Scientists, in which we are talking alternative energy and the science of oil. And kicking us off on that topic is Nicky White. He's from the Bullard Laboratory at Cambridge University. Good evening, Nicky. Thanks for coming in. Hello, Chris. Now, tell us a bit about the science of oil, because it's something we all take for granted. We just go to the filling station and fill up. How much oil is being burned off every second around the world, do you know? Uh, That's not a, a, a question that's easy to answer. What I can say is how much oil we use annually... Um, we use 30 billion barrels of oil. Is that worldwide? Liquid, worldwide, yes. And how much actually is that? I, what's, I should, what's in a barrel? I should say what a barrel is, yes, that's a good question. Uh, there are six barrels of oil in a cubic metre. So a cubic metre is like a large box, basically, metre by metre by metre. So how much space underground is this that that's, was oil and is now empty? Um, well, that's a... A complicated question. The best way to answer it is to look at the North Sea. And most people probably know that the North Sea is an important oil province. If you go out into the middle of the North Sea, there's about 200 metres of water. And underneath that water, there are about 10 or 15 kilometres of layered sediment. So dirt, basically. If you go down about four kilometres into that dirt, what you find is oil... Uh, but it doesn't occur in caverns. Uh, it occurs within the pore spaces of sandy rock, basically. So a sandy rock would have a porosity of about 30% or so, which isn't very much. doesn't sound very much. And the, um, those pore spaces would be filled with oil. So how do we know where to go looking? Yes, that's the hard bit for the oil industry. Um, the easy pickings were all onshore, and the m- main way in which they were found was through oil seeps, which occur at the surface. So that makes it very easy indeed. So the classic oil fields in places like Texas, uh, Louisiana, and indeed the Middle East, um, which is a huge area for oil, ex- oil, and they were all found in that sort of easy way. And you can drill relatively cheap holes down to the oil. And they must have some kind of cap over the area with the oil in it to stop the oil floating up to the surface, so in other words, trapping it. Yes, there are several ingredients to all this. You need something to make the oil in the first place, but you certainly do need something to to trap it at depth. So these sandy horizons, which have the oil within their pores, usually have an impermeable layer, like a layer of uh, limestone or a layer of salt, for example, on top, which stops the oil coming out. So what's the difference between, say, oil and coal? Because they contain many of the same chemicals, don't they? They do indeed. They're both basically decayed organic matter. So if you decay organic matter in the absence of oxygen, you will get things like coal and oil. So why are they different? And the main difference is that oil is formed from decaying algal matter primarily, which uh, is something that's rather surprising, I suppose, whereas coal is mostly due to the decay of things like trees and plant matter. Why should there be that distinction? Is it, is it obvious? Um, the main reason is that when you decay organic matter, um, depending on whether it's trees or algal matter or indeed sheep, it'll, be, it'll have a different composition in, this, in, a, in an organic chemical sense. So that when you cook it, which is the primary thing you need to do to actually release oil or gas, the cooking, what you produce in the cooking depends on the ingredient you start with to some degree. So, OK, we've got to the stage where we've made the oil. I, I presume most oil in this, in this world is millions of millions of years old, is it? 
Yes, so for example, take the North Sea, which is what we know and love next door to us. The oil there was made between 60 and 30 million years ago. That's when it So sort of end of the dinosaurs to, a, to fairly recently, really? Yes. And what, why is that the sort of cut-off? Is there, was there just not enough biomass, plants and living things on Earth, to make sufficient oil older than that? Is that why it sort of goes into that time period? Uh, well, it's a little bit of both, but it's primarily because of the, the cooking time. So the layer in the North Sea that's the best source rock, which is the layer of organic matter, that, that's a layer which actually occurs in Jurassic times when the dinosaurs were roaming around. So that's about 150 million years ago. Uh, that layer got progressively buried by later sediment pouring in on top of it, so it all sank down. And as it did so, it cooked up. And it just took all that time to cook. So it was basically ready um, between 60 and 30 million years ago. OK, so we have a porous sponge of rock which has got this stuff stuck in it. How do you get it out? Because I mean, most of us have this idea of someone just sticks a drill bit down and then you see the old Wild West picture where loads of stuff comes gushing out the top of your derrick. But how, how does it actually get achieved? And in, in places like Texas in the old days, that was all you had to do. And people drilled more or less at random until they found something, which can be expensive even onshore. The trouble these days is most oil is found offshore and it's rather hard to find. And drilling holes offshore is extremely expensive. So if you drill a hole in, say, three kilometres of water off West Africa, you could uh, pay up to $60 million per hole. So you kind of need to know it's there before you drill the hole. So what do you do? Because to find out what's down there, you have to drill a hole. Well, the major technique which is used by the, the oil industry to locate favourable structures and indeed favourable rocks is a form of echo sounding. It's called seismic surveying. And in a way, we think of it as a downward looking Hubble. So it's a way in which we can produce spectacular three dimensional images of the subsurface from the seabed, for example, or the land surface down to about 20 kilometres depth. And we can see that world, that hidden world in fully three dimensions and identify structures. So it's still a risky business, but you can basically reduce the risk quite a bit by collecting all of this echo sounding data first. So say you have pluses in all the right boxes, ticks in all the right boxes, you drill a hole, how do you actually get the stuff out? Uh, the, the oil which occurs in the pore spaces of the buried sandy rocks is under quite a lot of pressure. So in fact it pretty much comes out of its own accord, at least to start with. Um, in the lifetime of producing an oil field, that pressure starts to drop. Um, and one of the things you then need to do is to try and encourage the pressure back up. And the main way in which you can do that is you can put explosives down the, the boreholes and break up the rock, which encourages better flow. Or you can do something, you can drill holes which are called water injectors, which you, you drill extra holes round the side of the oil field and you pump down seawater, which pushes, it's like pushing oil on a, on a pan full of water. You can push the oil towards the producing. So how much oil in a reserve can we actually get at? How much, when, when you say this field is spent, roughly how much oil is actually left in there? Unfortunately, most of it is left behind. So we can produce between 30 and 40 percent economically. That's terrible. It's appalling. We're getting a bit better at uh, inching those numbers up, but it's a great technological feat to make those so numbers. So how much up. oil is left in the world, Nicky? Because when I was at school, 
uh, and this is about ten, 10 years ago, I, I think, when, you know, when I was leaving school, early university, people were saying, oh, by the millennium, we'll be really worried about how much oil there is. Now people are saying figures like 300 years of coal, 50 years at least of oil. You know, how much is actually out there still? Uh, there's a lot of doom and gloom. Uh, the pessimistic line is that if you take liquid hydrocarbons, so oil only, not coal, not tar sands and not gas, liquid hydrocarbon production will peak at about 30 billion barrels a year in something like 10 to 15 years' time and then decrease rapidly over the following 100 years. Um, however, there are optimists who believe that even that scenario is uh, too pessimistic. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. We've heard about the science of oil. We all know where it ends up. That's in our cars, and it ultimately translates into a lot of carbon dioxide that we think is provoking a greenhouse effect, which is warming our planet up and promoting climate change. Now, one way in which we might be able to bypass this problem is to develop cleaner sources of energy, and uh, someone who's here to talk to us about that is Professor Lynn McCaskey from Birmingham University. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Chris. Tell us about your work. Uh, OK, um... We were looking at alternative ways of, of making energy um, using bacteria, which are very small organisms found in the soil, found in water, found in loads of places. And um, one of the clever things that bacteria can do is they can make hydrogen. Um, you can make hydrogen from the petrochemicals industry, but as we've just heard, um, the lifetime of that industry may be finite. So it's high time we started looking at other ways to make hydrogen as a potential fuel because when it's burnt, it just leaves water. So it's we, a lot cleaner? It's a lot cleaner, and the water is clean. So if we also look towards a potential water crisis through global warming, then we have a way of making clean water as well. Presumably, if we take oil out of the ground, Nikki, uh, and turn that into carbon dioxide, that's not carbon neutral, because you're taking away a stable source of carbon that's been locked away and releasing it into the air, whereas what Lynn is suggesting is using energy which is already... Uh, available from the, from various sources, and it's not liberating new carbon dioxide. Would would you say that's a fair comment? That's correct. Yes. Although these days the oil industry is looking at ways of sequestering or burying the CO2 that um, uh, that's produced during the burning of hydrocarbons as well. So then, how does your technique actually work? Well, um, bacteria can can eat sugars, and for this we were looking at sugars that would otherwise go to waste, may actually be buried and get back into the environment that way. This is an awful waste of sugar, it's a waste of energy. And since bacteria love to eat sugars, what we decided to do was to see if uh, we could make them make hydrogen. Now, when we eat, we breathe out, and the bacteria do the same thing, they eat sugar and they breathe out, and they breathe out hydrogen. So in Birmingham, we've actually got the Cadbury plant not very far away. So we had a, a little project with Cadbury's to see if we could take some of their waste from um, confectionery, that's chocolate making, and feed it to bacteria and see if we could make the bacteria make hydrogen. How much do they chuck away that you could potentially be using? What's the sort of energy value that they're throwing down the drain each day just because there's no way to use it at the moment? Well, that's right, yes. It's actually very high in sugar, um, but if it, if it was reusable, I'm sure they would reuse it. I don't actually have the figures to hand as to how much is actually um, thrown away. It might actually be recycled into animal feed. I, I don't know that information. But um, to be able to reuse the waste on site may have the potential to generate energy and offset some of their own fuel demands and at the same time reduce the, the pressure on the national grid. 
how much energy can you generate and, and how do you do it? Talk us through the actual nuts and bolts of how bacteria ultimately culminate in the production of energy. Okay, it's a bit too too premature to say how much could actually be done one day. I mean, at the moment, um, we could calculate that to, to run a house at a, a basal level, that's without um, without cookers or heating, um, you could make um, um, a drum of perhaps one or two cubic metres full of bacteria. So that's the sort of level one would be looking at. The way they do this um, is they make the hydrogen, and you pass the hydrogen into a gadget that's called a fuel cell, and what the fuel cell does is it splits the hydrogen and the electrons go off into a circuit and, and run a load, for example, an electric fan or whatever. And then at the other end, the electrons recombine with the, the, the protons from the hydrogen and oxygen from the air to make water. So, so actually it's possible to, to couple the, the bacterial vats into a fuel cell and, and couple that into an electrical device. How much space would this take up? Is it at the moment sort of feasible? Because obviously the beauty of what Nikki's talking about, oil, the energy locked away in a tiny amount of oil is huge. Um, in order to produce a viable amount of hydrogen, how many barrels of bacteria would you need? It's a bit too soon to say that. As I say, we did a, ba- a basic calculation uh, where we calculated that you could probably run the, the background energy demand of a house on something that was about the size of a fridge freezer. How much fuel do you need to put into something like that? I mean, how much chocolate or some other sorts of sugar would you need to put into sort of fuel something like this to run a, a household or, or something domestic? You're looking at quite a lot, really. I mean, uh, you're looking at bagfuls. So it's quite unlikely that the average house would generate that much sugar. I think at the moment we'd be looking at factories that produce very concentrated wastes and lots of it. But the the next stage of the work would be to look at domestic waste and to see if in an ideal world one could recycle one's um, um, combustible, sorry, um, um, composting material into making hydrogen that you could then use into the... Um, the fuel supply for the house. Do you have to genetically modify the bacteria to make them more efficient at doing this, or can you just find these bugs living naturally in the environment? You can usually find bugs in the environment if you go looking for them. Obviously, genetic engineering will help you to make better ones, but um, it's probably better to go with what nature has provided. And uh, sometimes you can make bacteria breed. If if you put them together, they'll breed, and you can end up with um, better strains by selective breeding rather than genetic modification. And very briefly, Lynn, what's the time scale on the rollout of this kind of thing? At the moment, this is sitting in your laboratory. When will we expect reasonably to begin to see the first commercial viable uses of this technology? Well, the technology is likely to be installed in individual companies within five, ten years. Um, but for the hydrogen economy to really start to take off in a big way, I think we're realistically looking at 15 years, if not 20 years. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. We are talking about alternative energies this evening, and someone who's got a very interesting uh, development up his sleeve is Peter Hughes. Hello, Peter. Hello, good evening. Thank you for joining us on the programme. Can you tell us about your invention? Yes, it's a very straightforward, simple invention. It consists of a number of articulating plates that fit in the road, and when a vehicle passes over them, it causes a mechanism to uh, rotate that in turn rotates the generator, producing electricity. How much electricity must be the key question, Peter? Well, it depends upon um, the the weight of traffic, the number of vehicles, their comparative weight, but we're talking in order of between 5 kilowatt hours and anything up to 50 kilowatt hours. Well, that's more than enough to run, say, a set of streetlights, isn't it? Oh, most certainly, yes. It would run 
uh, uh, several small houses, or or alternatively, of course, it would light a, a lengthy section of the highway. Now, the obvious thing here is that traffic isn't going to be running over this continuously, so how do you soak up the extra energy that the cars produce in order to release it in a gentle fashion for street lighting and housing? Uh, We charge storage batteries during the period when we have a very heavy traffic flow, and when the the traffic is light, we then use the storage battery facility to, to continue to power the lights. Now, what's the payback period on this? Because, obviously, it's very easy to, to lump down a bit of concrete to create a speed control measure that, that everyone hates. And, in fact, we know that pollution goes up in the area where these things are as people sort of bounce over them and, and then accelerate. Your thing's obviously very complicated to, to plumb in, I presume, so, uh, and, and to build. So how long does it have to run for before it's paid for itself? It's between three and three and a half years, and thereafter your, your energy is absolutely free. That sounds fantastic. So when when's it going to be rolled out? Uh, we're rolling them out at the moment. We have inquiries from all over the world, uh, a very large number from the United States and Canada, but many other countries, and uh, we're, we're starting to manufacture them as of now. Have you got a contract from Cambridge yet? Because I think you need one. <laughs> well, hopefully that will come in due course. So how much does each one cost to build? Well, we have a modulized system so that... If, for example, you want to power a set of traffic lights, then you need a quite small unit, or you can power up to four traffic lights at a junction, and there we're talking in the order of about £15,000. If you want to to, uh, do a far greater energy uh, generation, then, of course, you can add modules on as you require them. And what about maintenance and um, the the lifetime, the service lifetime? How long do they last? Do they clap out after 10 cars? Presumably not. No, I I think um, it's reasonable to say that we reckon the the lifespan of this device will be about 10 years. It depends, of course, on the level of traffic and and, uh, uh, weather conditions and many other things. But we reckon 10 years because most of the components used in this device have been tested in other applications over many, many years, and uh, that they've shown themselves to have a very long lives indeed. Peter, thank you very much for joining us to talk about your invention. It's a pleasure. Uh, that was Peter Hughes, who's invented this electrokinetic road ram, which we should be seeing rolled out actually around the world, but certainly in the UK within the near future. I've got an email here from Peter Barton, who's in Carbrook in Norfolk. Uh, he says, um, please, can you or any of your extremely cal- clever colleagues calculate how much extra fuel would be burned by motorists during the current World Cup campaign as a result of flying flags from vehicles, um, bearing in mind the increased drag? What do you guys think about that? <laughs> No comment. <laughs> uh, they scare horses as well, allegedly. Right, Gordon's in Bury St Edmunds. Hello, Gordon. Hello. Hello. We're going to have to be a little bit on the swift side because we're a bit short for time, but uh, thank you for joining us. What would you like to know about? Well, I'd like to know what happens to the great hollows we are leaving below the seabeds when we extract all this oil and gas. Sure. Nicky, what do you think about that? Um, well, first of all, when the oil is extracted, um, it's coming out of the pores in the sandy rocks, and uh, in most places, those pores... Uh, the framework of rock can remain reasonably intact. Um, you do, however, in the long term, as you produce uh, an oil and gas field, get some subsidence. And perhaps the most notorious example is in the Netherlands, where 
Um, they don't really want any more sinking, but there's a very large gas field in the middle of the Netherlands con- called the Groningen gas field, and there's a lot of subsidence associated with that. But it's of the, the order. same thing has been happening with coal fields, hasn't it? People's houses have been known to disappear into their that, garden because of... That's a little bit different because what you're doing is actually excavating underground. So when the oil comes out, it's just coming out, it's seeping out of the, the pores, um, so you're not actually making a big hole down there. Does that help you, Gordon? Well, also, uh, on one... Uh one commentator there said that uh, we were pumping water in to increase the pressure to get the oil out. The fish is taking water from the oceans, of course. Is this going to uh, also equate with the global warming? Well, the amount of water that you're, you're pumping back in is uh, really very small compared with the, the volume of water in the oceans, so we don't really have to worry about that. OK. Thank you very much, Gordon, for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Quick uh, email here from Ruth. Uh, sorry, phone call from Ruth. She says, following process uh, progress of s- solar panels, the best are 16% efficient. Um, what's, what's the score with this? Well, yes, unfortunately, they are currently only 16% efficient uh, to about 20 Best ones yet I've seen in the order of perhaps 30% efficient. There's new research going to this now, actually, where people are working out a way of making them spit out far more electrons the current, for one photon, one particle of light. But it's um, certainly experimental at the moment, and the thing is they're so expensive to build and they're environmentally costly to build that at the moment it's not like Peter's ramp. It's actually costing you far more to build them and run them than they actually ever pay back, so it's just not energy efficient. But look, I have to say a very big thank you to our two guests this evening from Cambridge University, Dr Nikki White, and from Birmingham University, Professor Lynn McCaskey, for coming in and talking to us about their research this evening. Thank you both enormously. It's been a great pleasure having you on the programme. Thank you to everyone at home for giving up your time listening to us this evening. Um, Next week, we're going to be finding out about the exciting world of the microscopic. So we're going to be zooming in on bacteria, fungi and viruses with Stacey F. Stathew, Ali Ashby and Liz Socket. So if you have any questions about that, then uh, get calling or email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. I'd like to say thank you to our production team here at the BBC, Petro and Holly and Anna, and to Phil for coming in this evening and helping us make the programme. Thanks, Phil. Cheers, Chris, and cheers everyone out there. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.